This episode is brought to you in part by Candorel. Coming soon, a luxury master-planned condominium community rising at the corner of Bathurst and St. Clair. Situated directly on the subway and streetcar line, a monument of architecture and interior design, a timeless expression of glamour and grace. Forêt Forest Hill. Register today at liveatforêt.ca. That's live at f-o-r-e-t dot c-a. So many stories, articles about my father's passing and his legacy that you've seen. You know, tight words like titan, icon, pillar of community. It's been 60 years since Louise and I were involved in opening up that, that music store, record store. And uh, it's, it's been quite a time. The first was the voice of Gary Siegel, the son of the late Joseph Siegel of Vancouver, a businessman and philanthropist who died a few weeks ago. The second voice was Harvey Glatt, an Ottawa impresario, explaining how he and his wife Louise brought pop music culture to Ottawa, including creating the Treble Clef record store chain and Shea 106. Joseph Siegel and Louise Glatt are some of the prominent Jewish Canadians who have passed away this spring. And as you may have guessed, that means this is the second episode of our new feature called The CJN Deadbeat, where we give honorable mention to some honorable mention and women who our community has lost. If you missed the first episode, you'll know that a key part of the CJN Deadbeat is, of course, CJN reporter emeritus Ron Sillag. Ron's interviewed many prominent Jewish Canadians over his long career, and he's also written many obituaries. Ron will join with some of the stories you might not have heard about Joseph Siegel and Louise Glatt, and also Shirley Granofsky of Toronto, and former Montrealer Arthur Weinthal, and Yehudi Lindemann, a Holocaust survivor who then became Montreal's first recorder of Holocaust testimonies. It's good that people are living longer uh, because then they have more to tell. <laughs> they have more stories behind them. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Monday, June the 27th, 2022. Welcome to the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. And joining me now for our second installment of the CJN Deadbeat is Ron Sillag. Welcome back from holidays. Thank you. And before we get into the uh, people who we lost in the last few weeks since our last episode, we need to address an issue that came up when we launched, which was the name and the title of our, of our podcast. We called it the CJN Deadbeat. And I don't know about you, but we heard a few people who thought that it was very uh, eyebrow raising, not nice mm -hmm. to call people who died deadbeats. Can we just tell our audience why we chose this name? And it was totally not to offend anyone. No, it, it was not meant to be disrespectful to the people we're talking about, to dead people. Um, in the obit writing world, in the obit writing community, the beat, like a political beat, like a sports beat, like the education beat in newsrooms, the person who covers obits is covering the dead beat. So it's a play on words, and it's not meant to describe the uh, subject of the obit. It's just the nature of the business. This is what we do. It's the dead beat. A lot of journalistic humor is a little dark and, and uh, you know, morbid, but this isn't meant to be. And I urge everyone who's even, you know, remotely thinking of being offended to read uh, probably the best book on obit writing that has ever come out and was one of the first. It's called, incidentally, The Deadbeat. 
and it's written by a very good acquaintance of mine named Marilyn Johnson. I urge everyone to go to Amazon and get it because it is just amazingly entertaining and funny and a great book. And I might add, ironically, that none of the people we talk about have ever been deadbeats. In fact, they're all the opposite. They are all amazingly philanthropic and altruistic people. Let's start with Joseph Siegel. What do you know about him and what should our listeners know? Well, the reason he's not a household word, perhaps, in Toronto is because he spent his life out west in British Columbia. He was born in a small town in Alberta called Begreville, about 100 kilometers east of Edmonton. Um, his father died when he was still quite young, about 13, 14, and he had to make money. So he began by selling frozen fish door to door on his bicycle. Uh, he never had a formal education. His uh, son said he was nevertheless one of the smartest people he'd ever met, uh, a voracious reader, uh, obviously understood the ins and outs of business and understood that you can't be in business in a total vacuum. We'll get to that later. He, um, um, when he, you mentioned his war record, uh, I don't know much about it. You know more than I do. Mm -hmm. But after, he, after the war, he established, um, and I, this isn't the first time I've heard service people doing this, he established an army surplus store which sold, you know, I guess clothes, uh, clothes and uniforms that nobody else wanted, maybe uh, hardware. Also drums of, um, of oil and things and, and paint that nobody wanted. Right, that the army didn't reclaim. Obviously, they took back all their weapons, but not everything. He made, he made a very good living uh, doing that, and that evolved into the Fields department store chain, uh, over 100 locations across Western Canada. And so he obviously learned very, very quickly. Uh, Fields then later acquired a majority stake in Zellers. Zellers was sold to HBC, and he became one of uh, Hudson Bay Company's major shareholders. He also got into um, real estate as a developer with uh, Kingswood Capital Corp. He acquired something called Block Brothers Realty, which is a big real estate firm out west. Um, so he did very well in a very short time and uh, never forgot how that happened. He gave back um, in a very handsome way. He established the Siegel Graduate School of Business at Simon Fraser University, donated, get this, $12 million towards the construction of an addictions and mental health center at the Vancouver General Hospital, named after him and his wife, Rosalie. That was in 2017. He believed, as do many people who make this kind of money and believe in sharing it, that it's only worth something if you do something with it. Otherwise, it just sits around and makes more money. You spend some on yourself, but you mainly spread it around. Um, uh, as his son put it, if you put it under your mattress, your mattress just gets lumpy. He believed that. And so uh, a self-made billionaire, there aren't many of them, uh, but they're remarkable people. His death came quite as a surprise, especially to people who he would have lunch with. I don't know if you know the story. He had this regular table at a restaurant, and there was a book that was made out of uh, the conversations that he had with one of his sort of lunch guests, you know, but this was his hangout where mm -hmm. he dispensed wisdom. It's almost like Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah, this man yeah. was larger than life and his family and grandchildren and children as well are, are all sort of doing the second and third generation philanthropy uh, runway that he, he, he started, he taught them well. Yeah. Married 74 years, 11 grandchildren, and we just don't know how many great grandchildren, but there's a legacy for you. Yeah. I was 
recently at a funeral in Toronto of Shirley Gronofsky. And the last name Gronofsky is well known in philanthropy in this part of Canada. You didn't know her well. Yeah, I didn't know her well because not many people did. Shirley Gronofsky was 98 when she died, which means she was part of that generation of women or wives of successful men who were content to kind of stay in the background. And she deferred to her husband on a great many things. And her family openly acknowledges this and that she didn't become active philanthropically until Phil Gronofsky passed away. And it was only on the encouragement of her children who said, you know, it's okay for you to do it. It's okay for women to give away money. And Lord knows she did. She went on a tear. She donated to UJA, United Way, Via Hafta, Associated. Associated is, is, is an interesting um, donation there because they were... The family was rather poor uh, when she married Phil and they needed financial assistance for the kids to go to Associated. So here she was giving them a lot of money, Toronto Jewish Film Festival, among many others. Um, Her family acknowledges that she generally deferred to her husband on financial matters, including philanthropic ones. Here's a quote from uh, her daughter. My husband and I would talk to her and it took years for us to convince her, it's okay, mom, you can do it. When she started her philanthropic work, it was like a drug. She was the first person to make a $1 million donation to Jewish Family and Child Service. And we don't, a lot of people don't really think about donating money to social service agencies. They're funded through UJA and in JFNCS's case, they also receive provincial dollars. She made a $1 million donation to Jewish Family and Child. As a result, they used that donation to set up a program called Striving to End Poverty. And this helped women and newcomers break the cycle of poverty paying for them to go back to school, paying for them to buy a computer, things like this. One thing that was so interesting at the funeral was that her granddaughter, Anais Gronofsky, who's an actor in Toronto, um, known for being on Degrassi, wrote uh, her, her memoirs came out. And what many people did not know is maybe in the, the time that Anais was born, Anais' mother was a black woman from the United States who was on welfare. And the son, um, you know, wasn't really sort of following the family line of, you know, being a businessman, traditional, you know, breadwinner. He was kind of a free spirit. He is a free spirit. So when this uh, woman of color uh, and her and the granddaughter sort of appear in the Gronofsky life, uh, instead of sort of shunning this uh, child, she... Um, had a bedroom for her in her house. She took Anais in. She brought her to the Primrose Club, which I remember my grandparents used to bring me to in Toronto, which was sort of this private Jewish club. She would go there for Friday night dinner. And and she treated her as a Bubby Wood. And they were very, very close. And so um, how unusual was that in those days uh, to do that and sort of buck society? Uh, and and also one other thing that Anais mentioned at the funeral, which I thought was amazing, was that uh, her grandmother always used to bother her and huck her because she didn't like to wear lipstick and she wanted her to look good. So her grandmother would always foist these two or three lipsticks on her no matter how old she was, even in her hospital room. And so that's cute. So uh, we have a couple more of honorable mention to mention. Uh, let's move to Ottawa. Louise Glatt a little-known personality in Canadian Jewish history, maybe not in Ottawa. She was an American. Um, she married a man from Ottawa or Canadian. They moved to Ottawa in the mid-50s with her husband, Harvey, and uh, very cultured, very um, uh, into music and art and all this. Arrives in Ottawa and realizes that it's a cultural wasteland. There's just nothing going on. Uh, there's no uh, aquarium. There's no zoo. There might have been a symphony, but 
not much in the way of museums. Um, she ended up um, establishing, they opened the first record store in Ottawa called Treble Clef. I remember Treble Clef. That was big. Yeah, and that was big. Not only it was so big that it expanded into a chain of 15 stores and they sold the the most modern, strangest, cutting edge music, what, what might have been called beatnik stuff in those days. They operated a legendary, speaking of beatniks, they operated a beatnik coffee house called De Hibou. And they launched a music concert promotion business called Bass Clef to go with Treble Clef. They founded a radio station, Shea FM, mm-hmm. Salta Rogers, still going strong today. And uh, she died May 26th at the age of 85. They met in, a uh, couple met in Potsdam, New York, where she was attending music school. And he saw this beautiful girl at a Jewish service. And that was the end of it. Um, she was a very dedicated volunteer. She gave music construction, free music construction to special ed children. Uh, she helped refugee women improve their literacy skills. She played piano for Alzheimer's patients. And in an early stab, I suppose, at kind of art therapy, she taught music to adults with developmental disabilities. Mm. And uh, her marriage to her husband was described as sweet and gooey. And there you go. And we should stay sort of with the arts um, for our second to last honorable mention. This is a fellow who worked uh, many, many years building CTV, Arthur Weinthal. Yeah, Arthur Weinthal, also a little known personality, um, died in his 90th year, I believe on May 14th. He was born in Montreal, of course. All the great talent is, right? (laughs) Uh, He moved to Toronto before it was fashionable. He came in 1962. Um, he joined CTV right away, and where he had a celebrated career there, going over many, many years. He had a hand in really molding the content on private television. Okay, one more thing about Arthur Weinthal is that, according to some of the obituaries and, and stories about him, he turned down Seinfeld and Cheers. Well, he, he didn't exactly turn them down. He thought they were too expensive uh, they, at their peak, and he thought CTV couldn't afford it. We're going to just end today's episode on a Holocaust survivor. Well, Montrealer born uh, Yehudi Lindemann, who died on June 12th. Um, he was a child survivor of the Holocaust, born in Amsterdam in 1938. Uh, spent his very young, very formative years in hiding under the Nazi occupation of Holland. Um, he then um, again came to Montreal. Uh, eventually, after completing a PhD in comparative literature at Harvard, he taught at uh, SUNY and others. Um, in the early 70s, he began, which is a heady time in Montreal, he began teaching at McGill. And that's where he would spend the rest of his life uh, in, in Montreal. Um, he explored, he was a bit offbeat in that he explored very kind of what were called transformative practices and healing arts. Uh, some might say it's a little, you know, new agey. But he pursued training in something called rebirthing, something called the Jin Shin Du. Don't ask me what that is. He became, he, he spent significant amount of time studying um, uh, all kinds of psychological transforma- transformative practices in Mexico. Uh, it was a haven for him. He was very much counterculture. He and his wife were both sort of into that scene. But um, obviously a brilliant man who wound up uh, uh, not being able to completely let go of his survivor past, even though he probably remembered very little of it, if any. He went on to found something called the Living Testimonies Project at McGill, which was one of several 
endeavors intended to record both audio and video, the testimonies of Holocaust survivors, kind of a precursor to the Shoah Foundation. It documented personal narratives of hundreds of survivors in Montreal. Um, and he went on to write a, a terrific book called Shards of Memory, Narratives of Holocaust, Survi Holocaust Survival. That was the culmination of his work. And he really worked hard to develop an international network of child survivors of Nazi persecution in, in Holland and in other places. Of the five people that we've um, talked about today, what stands out for you in terms of putting them all together? Uh, you know, I, I wish I could do, I've said this before, I wish I could do an open on just about everybody because everybody has a story. And I've encountered, I think, maybe one time in my entire life where I set out to do something and there was not much there there. But even then, I may have given up too early. Everyone has an interesting story and everyone in our community, especially if they came from Europe in that era, has an interesting story. And especially if they grew up in poverty, especially if they're, you know, lived out a novel of a, you know, Horatio Alger book and became billionaires in a matter of, you know, a few decades. Those are all amazing stories. Everyone has a great story. And if you in our listening audience would like us to uh, profile someone that you think needs an honorable mention or deserves an honorable mention, don't forget to get in touch with us through our Facebook or our uh, Instagram or Twitter or email me the old-fashioned way at ebessner at the cjn.ca. So Ron, thanks again for a great dead beat. And so far, we're keeping the name, guys, now that you understand why. <laughs> Always a pleasure. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Paige Megan, who loved our story about the rabbi they helped appear in Drake's new music video. And we'll end with more from Joe Siegel's son, Gary, about why his father may have donated millions to charity, but was worth more than the dollar figures suggest. See, he was born with a, a wealth of attributes. You know, it could go on for a long time about them, but to highlight a few, he was just a natural-born philosopher. He was a generous man, caring, a memory. He would never forget anything or anybody. He was passionate about life. He had many dreams, his own and those that inspired others. He had an ability to talk to people and make everybody, no matter what stage in life, feel important, like they mattered and like somebody cared about them. 